David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the book, The Phantom of the Opera, the main character, the phantom, he falls in love with a woman named Christine. And the only problem is that Christine already has someone that she loves. She loves her childhood sweetheart, Raul. And so the phantom, like all people who love someone who doesn't love them, does the, the reasonable thing and goes and kidnaps her and takes her to his lair. That's a, a surefire way to get the girl to love you, buddy. Uh, and when he has her in his lair, he basically has this ultimatum, like, leave Raul, love me, or I'm going to blow this whole house down. I'm going to blow up the entire Paris Opera House today if you do not love me. Well, I won't ruin the ending uh, of this murderous rage that the Phantom has. You'll have to go read the book or watch the play or something. But what I want to point out is unchecked jealousy has the power to destroy. Unchecked jealousy progresses and progresses. It eats away your soul until you get to this place where you're a raging madman. And that's what we see Saul doing in today's passage. Saul has this feeling of jealousy, and he lets it take him completely over. Friends, we live in a world where there are people who have more than we do. No matter where you are, there is someone who has more than you do. It's like that old John, uh, John Rockefeller quote. Uh, this man, richest man in the history of the world. Like, you take uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the two richest people in the United States right now, you add them together, you got John Rockefeller. All right, this man is crazy rich. They asked him, how do you know when enough money's enough? What is enough money for you? And he said, just a little more. And isn't that how we always feel? There's always a little bit more that we need. 
And we see our friends have it. We see someone else has something that we don't have. And we want it. And this going unchecked in our hearts will eventually destroy us. Today I want to look at three points about jealousy and Saul's jealous rage. And those three points are the progressive power of jealousy, the hidden source of jealousy, and the surprising antidote to jealousy. The progressive power of jealousy, the hidden source of jealousy, and the surprising antidote to jealousy. First, the progressive power of jealousy. So far in our story, things have gone pretty well for David, right? We're in week three of a series on David, and this is really kind of the first week where we see things start to twist and not go so great. The first week, he's the runt of the family, yet Samuel comes and chooses him, asks for him. He says, there's got to be someone else more. It's a Cinderella story. He's out uh, tending to the sheep, and they bring him in, and he's anointed as the future king of Israel. And then last week, he's still a boy. He's 15, 16 years old. He shows up, cheese delivery uh, to, to his brothers there uh, at the battlefield. And he's like, who's this big dude teasing us? I'll take him out. And he goes and he takes his sling and he swings a, a, a rock and it hits Goliath and he takes out the giant. So things have gone very well for David so far. But when he comes home, they continue to go well until this hits Saul. They continue to go well because he comes home and they're singing songs about him. Verse 7, and the women sang songs to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, this isn't meant necessarily to be a slight on Saul. This is just meant to be a celebration of both of them, and especially of David, who is a great warrior. Remember, Saul was the one that should have taken on Goliath, and instead he let the boy do it. But Saul hears this song. And it's a very kind of like Michael Jordan meme moment where where he says, and I took that personally. Because he hears that song. And from that day forward, look look at what it says. And Saul was very angry. Verse 8. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands? What more can he have but the kingdom? He's scared. Look at that. He's scared. It's losing. He sees it falling out of his fingers. And verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. Now that's an odd phrase. Saul eyed David, like E-Y-E-D. He eyed him. He was looking at him. The New American Standard uh, Version says, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. The Hebrew, it's a weird phrase in Hebrew. What it is in Hebrew is Saul looked at David through jealousy. It's almost like Saul picked up his jealous glasses and put them on, and that was the only way he was able to see David from that day forward, was through jealousy. He was eyeing him through jealousy. After that moment, Saul's life spirals out of control progressively, one step after the next. It doesn't go from zero to a hundred immediately, but it just progressively sinks into this murderous rage of jealousy. 
what we see in chapters 18 and 19, and it continues after that, but we're just, we, we only read like six or seven verses here, maybe a few more, 10 or 12. Um, I'm looking at all of chapter 18 and 19 today, and I'm going to walk us through it without reading all of it. But what we see in 18 and 19, and even beyond after that, are 11 assassination attempts of Saul on David through six different methods. He's after them, and they progress. Let's just walk through them. First, David is playing his lyre for Saul. A lyre is like a little handheld harp, okay? Um, And Saul goes into a fit of rage. What used to bring him joy is not bringing him joy anymore. Uh, You see, David was his musician, and he sees David, he he feels jealous, and Saul, probably in a drunken rage, picks up his spear and says, I'm going to put this through his chest and pin him to the wall. But David eludes him. But David evaded him twice. I love how it says that. Like the first time David said, wow, Saul must be having a really bad day. I'm going to play this this harp a little bit more. And then Saul does it again. He's like, oh, I don't think Saul likes me anymore. I think I need to get out of here. Here's a lesson for us all. Try to pin me to the wall with a spear once. Shame on you. Try to pin me to the wall with a spear twice. Shame on me. The next way that Saul tries to kill David is verse 13. He removed David from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. That doesn't sound like a way to kill him. But he knew that if he makes him the commander of a thousand and he puts that thousand on the front lines, that the Philistines will do his job for him. He doesn't have to kill him. He can just put him in the military and send him to the front lines. If this sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you recognize it as David's own method of murder later on in this story that we'll come to. You see, oftentimes these patterns of sin and patterns of abuse get repeated. And it's a sad reality to see it happen like this. And what is Saul doing here? Saul is abusing his power to take David out. He's not trying to do it himself. He's not in this excusable, semi-excusable, drunken rage. Instead, he's abusing his power to take out his enemy. But verse 14, David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Well, that must have frustrated him. So verse 17, Saul gives his daughter Merib to David as a wife. Again, this doesn't sound that bad um, until you realize that in that day and age, wives were usually not given. You see, Saul has already broken his promise to David. He was supposed to give him a wife for deleting the, uh, to, for defeating the giant. For deleting the giant? That's another way of saying it. David deleted the giant. Um, it's kind of like cancellation, but differently. Um, Saul was supposed to give David his daughter as a wife for defeating the giant, but he didn't. And instead, he said, here, you can marry this one, not the firstborn one, a different one, but you have to pay a bride price. Now, the problem with that is David's not a rich man. He's not coming from an elite family, and so he has no money to give Saul. So Saul names his own price, and what Saul says is, here's the price for you. This is a weird verse, verse 25. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, that's a weird 
that is just a weird verse. Um, if you thought scalping was weird, this is like a very weird version of scalping, okay? And it, it is what it is. Uh, but David succeeded. And not only did he succeed, but he doubled it. David and his men went out, brought back 200 foreskins. He said, give me my wife now. <laughs> wife, please. Like, that's, that's what David did in that moment. So then Saul continues. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Saul sends a team of assassins. Or, excuse me, we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, Saul tries to convince his son Jonathan to kill David. Verse 1, chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants that day that they should kill David. But Saul's son... Jonathan delighted much in David. This one didn't get very far. This is only like two verses, and then they move on. Uh, what Saul didn't realize is that Jonathan, his son, and David are already besties, and they're not going to—Jonathan's not going to do this. This one didn't get very far. The next way that Saul tried to kill David, verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 19, Saul sends a, a team of assassins to David's house to kill him. This is such an epic moment in this story. It's kind of out of a movie— it's, it's, one of, it's, it's like Ferris, Day, Ferris Bueller's Day Off meets the Sopranos here. Um, what happens is David catches wind of it, and his wife loves him, and so they make a mannequin, and they stick it in the bed, and they put, like, goat hair on the mannequin. And then when the assassins get there, David's wife is like, oh, he's sick. He can't come down. And so then they bust into the room and go and grab the mannequin to stab it, and <laughs> it's goat hair and, and, and a mannequin. It's not, it's not David. He's escaped. And the last way that Saul, that Saul tries to kill David is by David, after, after this point um, where the team of assassins try to kill him, he's like, okay, I better get out of here. So he goes and finds his old mentor Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel says, come on, let's go to the commune. Uh, they go to this, um, this commune, this place in the city where other prophets are living and where they're kind of doing prophet training, I suppose. And Saul se- sends a team of assassins to kill him. The team gets there. They call them messengers, but really it's a, a group of people there to bring the message of death. This is an assassin team, okay? And uh, they get there. And what do they start doing? They start prophesying. You see, they recognize when they get to that house of prophets that God is the king, not Saul. They start prophesying. They don't fulfill it. So what does Saul do? Sends another team. Team two, you're in. Let's go. They get there. They start prophesying. What does Saul do? Team three, you're on. Let's go. They get there. They start prophesying. So Saul says, well, you can't find good help these days. And he starts marching himself. Before Saul even gets to the location where they all are, he starts prophesying. Saul himself, in his murderous rage, off to commit homicide, starts prophesying on his way to kill him. He arrives, and what does Saul do? It reads like he's losing his mind, honestly, and and he might be. Verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that night and that day. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? 
Saul is descending into a nude state of madness. He's gone crazy, is basically what you see here. He's gone crazy with jealousy, with anger, with rage. It's taken over his heart and his life. See this slow progression. It starts off just like, oh, that was a mistake. I was drunk. And then it's an abuse of power. And then it's, oh, son, will you go kill him for me? And then it's, I'm going to send a team of assassins. Then I'm going to send three. It's like, all right, I'm going to go do it myself, just in cold blood. It's a slow descent into madness. You see, it started small. Verse 8 of chapter 18. It all started with this. They have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me. Let's just stop there. That's the heart of jealousy. That's it. That's where it started. It started with that simple thought and it progressed from there. They have ascribed to David his ten thousands and to me. The heart of jealousy is this thought, him? But me. Her? But me. What about me? You can summarize jealousy with her, him, but me. That's what happened to Saul. Have you ever thought like that? Maybe you've desired to be married for all of your life, or most of it at least, and your ex-girlfriend or your ex-boyfriend gets married. Him? But me! Maybe you've been longing for this position at work, and this coworker who works less hours than you, who doesn't do as good of a job as you, but maybe is closer friends with the boss, gets the promotion. Her? But me. Maybe you see a friend driving a nicer car. What about me? Maybe you scroll on Instagram and you see luxurious vacations. Them but me. You see, in jealousy, there's this sense of someone else has something, but I feel like I deserve that thing. And so not only do I want what they have, I I would be more happy if they didn't have what they have. Jealousy makes you unbelievably self-absorbed. Makes you unbelievably self-absorbed. Theodore Roosevelt says this, comparison is the thief of joy. And that's what we see with jealousy. So that's the progressive power of jealousy. Let's look now at the hidden source of jealousy. Because I think that where it comes from might be a little surprising to us. Um, Normally what we think of when we see jealousy is greed, right? Like, oh, I just want more, I want more. Greed, greed, greed. But where Saul's jealousy comes from, the source of Saul's jealousy is not necessarily greed. The source of Saul's jealousy is fear. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. You see, this is what was fueling all of Saul's murderous rage, was this fear that he was losing power. And it gets worse over time. That's verse 12. Verse 29 says, Saul was even more afraid of David as his assassination attempts failed. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Friends, fear is a great motivator. 
It motivates us for many things. The news uh, channels definitely know this. There's a saying in news, if it bleeds, it leads, which means if it makes people feel afraid, we're putting it up there first because it's what's going to get the the views. It's what's going to get the clicks. Fear, there's a fear-mongering, and it's not right or left, it's both. (laughs) Both sides of the political spectrum like to feed off of our fear. Psychology Today says fear-based news stories prey on the anxieties we all have and then hold us hostage. You see, Saul was afraid of losing that thing that mattered the most to him. That thing that he loved the most, which was his power. And once he saw his power slipping, he, he spinned into madness. He spinned into being a crazy lunatic man. He was willing to bring down the whole opera house. Friends, if anything is more important to you than God, this is the lesson here. For Saul, it was his power, but for us, it can be anything. If anything is more important to us than God, that will often be the thing that causes us to feel jealous when we see someone else has it. If our health is that, thing that we love more than God, then you're going to feel jealous when you see someone else has better health than you do. If our beauty, if our children, if our job, if our relationships, our success, our wealth, our identity or reputation, if these things are of ultimate importance to us, they are the things that we will fight to keep and that we fear to lose. You see, the things that we love the most are the things that we most want to keep to ourselves. And when someone else has it, we feel jealous. It's the surprising source of where jealousy comes from. And the last thing is the antidote to jealousy, a surprising antidote to jealousy. Before we talk about the antidote, I think that what we have to do, and I think that people who, I don't know this, I assume this, we probably have people at our church that could tell me if this is true or not, but before you can uh, discover an antidote, uh, you need to study the disease, right? You need to understand how the disease works, where it comes from, how you fight against it. If you don't know the disease, if you don't know if it's a bacteria or a virus, you're not going to be able to properly give it an antidote. And so we need to understand jealousy even a little bit more as we think about that. And here's the, here's the verse that I think is the most counter to jealousy. This is the anti-jealousy in many ways. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see, with jealousy, we end up weeping at the rejoicing and rejoicing at the weeping. This is the opposite of jealousy, is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And this is really a summary of what it means to love. You know, love shows empathy. Love shows understanding. It allows you to celebrate what others have achieved and what others have. But then when you can't show that empathy and rejoicing, you end up in jealousy, which is counter to love. It's the opposite of love in many ways. When you're jealous, you have the sense that you deserve better, that life is unfair, 
that God is unfair, your boss is unfair. Whatever it is, it's unfair. They have it, I want it. Him? What about me? You see, in that is, is baked this works righteousness that says, I've been pretty good. I deserve better than what I have at this moment. I deserve better. You see, jealousy, it's not just opposed to love. Jealousy is a cancer to love. Once those thoughts start going into your heart, it starts eating away at your ability to love someone else. Once you see that someone else has what you want, it will eat away at you. It's a cancer to your love. And if jealousy is a cancer to love, let me remind you that the way you beat cancer is not by ignoring it. But you have to fight it. You see, friends, when you have those jealous feelings, you can't just hope that they go away. You can't just put your mind on something else. You know, a, a way that we oftentimes deal with jealousy is we say, okay, that person has the car I want, but I'm fitter than they are. I'm more athletic than they are. And so it's like you kind of compensate yourself, but don't you see how that's just another way to set yourself up for the next person who comes along who's more athletic than you are? But maybe you have a better car than them. You see, we have this pecking order in our mind, but we have to escape from that pecking order in order for us to truly rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's a very challenging way to do it. Jealousy is a cancer, and we need gospel chemo. We need the gospel to come and eat away at the jealousy before the jealousy eats away at our ability to love one another. You have to meditate and realize what God has done for you. If you're really to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, you need to understand what God has done for you. And here it is. That God has come to earth as a man. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life and died a death that he did not deserve. But you do. And he did all of this. Why did he do it? He did it so that he might share with you things that you do not deserve. You see, he took the death that you do deserve so that he might share his life, his righteousness, his own throne with you who do not deserve that. But yet he wants you to receive it. Friends, life is unfair. Christ died on the behalf of others. That is not fair. But yet he was a righteous man who did it so that we might sit on the throne of God. Did you know that God is going to share his throne with us when we enter into the kingdom to come? You see, he's abundantly gen generous towards us. Jesus, he came not to be served, even though he had all the reasons to be served. He came rather to serve, to lift up others as better than himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you understand your unworthiness, then you're not going to start screaming about life being unfair. When you understand how much you don't deserve, but yet how much God has given you, how generous he has given you, it allows you to replicate that. 
But see, that has to go deep into your heart first. You can't just say, well, God's been generous with me. I guess I'm just going to be generous with others and love them. No, you need to really understand and perceive the generosity and kindness that God has given to you so that you in turn can share that same kind of love, empathy, and care for others. You see, jealousy says, I deserve it. I don't want them to have it. Jesus says, I deserve it. I want them to have better than they deserve. It's so different to the way our hearts normally function. Friends, gospel people understand this concept to a point where they emulate it and they display it all of the time. The gospel is that no one deserves the grace of God, but God is generous. It's called grace. And we need more of it. We need more grace in our lives, don't we? We need more people to show us grace, and we need to give grace to people more often. We live in a world where justice is demanded, but forgiveness is withheld. We must be people of forgiveness and grace and kindness and generosity better than they deserve. I saw a sitcom one time that put it like this. The the protagonist said to his daughter, he said, because kids are always complaining about things not being fair, if you don't have kids, um, (laughs) take my word for it. Um, But in the sitcom, the protagonist says, the only way, the only time you look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure they have enough. Never look in their bowl to make sure you have as much as they do a good word for us. We have this house rule, this this community commitment where we say gospel people build up, they don't beat up. We build one another up, friends. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We can be genuinely happy when someone has what we don't have. That is so hard, but it is a sure sign of Christian maturity. When you can rejoice with someone who has more and better things, more and better experiences than you do, when you can genuinely rejoice with them, it's a surefire sign of your Christian maturity and confidence that this life is not all there is. You see, if you live for heaven, you know that you get to share that throne one day. You know that you get the presence of God in full one day. And so why are you going to be worried about comparing little things here on earth, when you have all of eternity to look forward to. When you can have that type of contentment and generosity and rejoicing and empathy, it shows that you have placed your hope and faith and trust in your eternal inheritance that is to come. So as we end, let me just give you a few practical steps for dealing with jealousy. A few practical steps for dealing with jealousy. First, and this one's probably the hardest, of all of them, um, you have to give it a name. It's really humbling for you to say in your heart, you know what, I'm feeling jealous right now. When you open Instagram today, I, I want you to do this. If you're on Instagram, if you're that type of person, open it up, if you're not fasting from it, open it up and say, I'm going to name all the times I feel jealous as I go through this. And then you might put Instagram down for a little while because you're probably going to be naming it often because that's what these things are made for, to feed off your discontentment. But give it a name. When you feel jealous, recognize that as jealousy. Confess it to God. Tell God, I feel jealous. Write it down, whatever it might be. And then pray. 
Ask the Lord to give you contentment and joy in what he entrusts to you. You see, the Lord entrusts us with what he knows that we can handle. And we let him entrust to others what they can handle. Because God is sovereign and he knows what each of us needs. And God's given you everything you need today. Friends, God has given you everything you need today. And so pray, seek the Lord, help him, ask him to remind you of that. Meditate on what Christ has given you. Consider your heavenly inheritance. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Make it a point to rejoice with others, to be happy with them. And then lastly, step into generosity. And this is the counterintuitive aspect of the antidote to jealousy, is when you see something that someone else has that you want, what you think is the way to fix it is either take it from them or I get that as well. But that's not the antidote. The antidote is I'm going to give away more of my stuff. I'm going to put my hope more in heaven. Jealousy cannot be cured by getting what you want, only by giving away what you have. You have to turn it upside down. If you have time, give away your time. If you have love, give away your love. If you have money, give away your money. If you have hugs, keep those to yourself. There's a pandemic going on right now. On the night that he was betrayed, Christ gave us the thing that he had, which was his entire life and his righteousness, his identity as a son of God. He gives this to us. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, my body broken for you, my free gift. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And each week we participate in this meal. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. We're reminded that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Guys, we come to you today, help us to come in spite of ourselves, knowing that you are good, that, that you are holding the world together, that you have given us everything we need. God, give us contentment, and give us joy, and help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Help us to hear from you during this time, be reminded of this good news, that you've been abundantly generous to us. And so you empower us to be generous people, people who care about others. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, and we pray that you'll be moving in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.